miss her I get home Right now Good morning, Columbia. It is just a little after 9 o'clock. You know, I'm going to miss her. A song by Brad Paisley. You know who United States soccer fans aren't going to miss? The Mexican national team. After the United States, a dos a cero at TQL Stadium in Cincinnati, Ohio, just last week, defeated Mexico. Again, a classic scoreline there as Mexico stumbles in this qualifying window here, going 0 for 2, almost had a dos a cero in Canada. At least that's what I was seeing uh, on social media. They lost 2-1 in Edmonton in the snow. Lots of crazy stuff happening there. Lots of domestic soccer to talk about today. MLS Cup playoffs begin in the next few days. You have the NWSL final taking place in Louisville between the two underdogs of the first round matchups here, the semifinals in the Chicago Red Stars and Washington Spirit. An international window of qualifying just wrapped up, not just in America or North America, I should say, but all over the world. I want to talk a little bit about the craziness that occurred there. So lots going on. This is Soccer from the Zoo. I'm Kyle Pinnell, and, and for the next hour or so, like I said, plenty to talk about all over the world of soccer. I'm very excited to be back here again today. Um, going to take next week off for Thanksgiving break. I will actually be back home in Portland, Oregon, celebrating with my family. First time getting to go home in a little bit, uh, or actually since I got here in August. So definitely excited for that. So there won't be a show this or this next week. This week, a lot to pack in. So without wasting any time, I want to start again with the United States men's national team, looking at the window that they just had. I mean... You lose, or you don't lose. You beat Mexico, Dos Acero, in Cincinnati, and I can start there. That has been the best performance I've seen from the U.S. men's national team, and I don't think I'm alone in that statement. At least recently, going into the game, biggest game since 2017, World Cup qualifier, you're down in the table, you're below Mexico in the World Cup qualifying table. And so going into that game, Mexico's been solid, nothing spectacular, but over the years, they've had the United States' number in these World Cup qualifiers. Now, the U.S. also beat them in the summer, but this was the game that mattered. I talked about this last Thursday on the show, and boy, did they show up. And before the game, you see a little bit of disrespect from the Mexican national team. You see the United States, or Mexico is the mirror in which the United States wishes to see itself. That was a quote from Guillermo Ochoa, the goalkeeper for Mexico. And after the game, and with the goal, Christian Pulisic scores on a header, Late in the game to give America the one nothing lead. You couldn't see on the, t- on the TV at the time because he was facing away from a camera. There was, like, no camera there. But pictures after, his shirt, his undershirt, said, Man in the Mirror. That was just an all-time own by Christian Pulisic in the United States against Mexico. After the game, apparently, they played Man in the Mirror on, or, or throughout the stadium. But it was just so awesome to see that atmosphere. The United States looked amazing. Everything from the MMA midfield, of course, Tyler Adams, Weston McKenney, uh, Eunice Musa. Um, defense was solid. Mexico, after that first half, didn't have many chances. I think Chucky Lozano had the best chance of the night in the first half, getting in behind the United States' back line, forcing Zach Steffen into a momentous save there. few moments Tyler Adams might want back. I know there was a pass in the first half that led to one of those direct chances. Just a little wayward from him, but it was an complete performance by the United States men's national team. 
Mexico could never generate many chances. The United States topped the table after after that night. Now they sit in second to Canada now based on what happened in the second game. But you go back, you couldn't have asked for anything better against Mexico than what the United States put out there. I don't think many people expected that type of performance, but they set a very high bar for what you can expect when this team is clicking all, on all cylinders. And now you go into that second game in Kingston, Jamaica, at the office, and, and you drop you drop two points to Jamaica. And so you kind of see a little bit of a flip side. It's the United States men's national team in road qualifying. Of course, every single week, I'm going to harp on it. Everyone harps on it. You just can't lose away. You can't afford a Panama result. You draw on the road, you win at home, and you qualify for the World Cup. The U.S. has taken their road loss. They've drawn at home. They beat Mexico, a huge game in the standings. But a draw against Jamaica, who who were at the bottom of the table going into the match. That's just a result you can't have. This is the same Jamaica team the U.S. beat in Austin, Texas, 2-0 in the last matchup. And it looked like the U.S. would be playing with even more confidence coming off of that Mexico win. And and then going from that, scoring first. Tim Weah, a great solo goal on the left side, just kind of getting through Jamaica's defense and... Getting it off the far post, literally hitting off that far post and right past Andre Blake. one nothing early on for the United States, and then they just switched off. They looked like the better team, you know, doing the eye test, even the statistics. The U.S. played a great first 10, 15 minutes. Then Mikel Antonio happened, probably the best player on the field at that point. An informed striker for one of the best teams, a top-four team, West Ham United, in the Premier League. Just an incredible goal from outside the box. That ball was swerving and dipping, and after the game, Zach Steffen said it reminded him of one of those balls in South Africa. Uh, the notorious kind of, it was weighted a little differently, it spun differently in the air, it was unpredictable. He said it looked like that. And I mean, if you're going to concede a goal, at least it was something like that to a really incredible player. But then the U.S. just didn't have any fight, couldn't recover from there, and so that was a little bit disappointing. And so going through what what I've seen from the men's national team, I, I want to look at three worries that I have with them and a few things I'm positive about. I've kind of alluded to them in recapping the first two games a little bit in that window and just an overarching view there. The United States won a game, drew a game, four points from the window. And if you look at where that puts them in the Ocho, which is the eight team standings here, uh, United States sitting in second with 15 points right behind Canada. On 16 points, again, an incredible win for them in Edmonton. Mexico on 14 points, Panama on 14 points. Then there's a drop-off before Costa Rica, Jamaica, El Salvador, and Honduras. So it's a four-team race, and I'm going to touch on that in a few minutes, but 14 points, 14 points, 15 points, 16 points there. Only the top three teams make the World Cup. The fourth gets sent to a qualifier, so that is something to be cognizant of. You know, I'm going to start with a few things I'm concerned about. Again, it's those inconsistent performances on the road, right? You draw at the office. You lose in Panama City. And you draw nil-nil in El Salvador. You win 4-1 in Honduras. I mean, it's not easy to win on the road, and that's something that fans should be remembering. Like any other time, you you are happy with the 1-1 draw in Jamaica. And in some ways, the way that the United States approached that, uh, not loss, but draw, they treated it like a loss. And that just shows where their expectations are. I know Greg Berhalter talked about it after the match. And that's good to see. It's good to see that they expect to beat Jamaica on the road in Kingston. 
It doesn't matter that it is on the road in front of 5,000 people. They expected that, and they didn't do it, and they were a little disappointed. That's awesome to see as a U.S. men's national team, kind of flipping that point and making it a little more positive. But, you know, for me, it's a little bit Jekyll and Hyde with them. Some good home games, you know, they go from the best performance you could have had against Mexico, and then to lose, or not to lose, I keep saying to lose, to draw against Jamaica on the road, to lose against Panama on the road, to draw Canada at home. In that game. Now, Canada's a great team. Again, they're top of the table. They have been an incredible story. But some of the, the home results have been a little interesting, a little concerning. Um, just a little bit Jekyll and Hyde from the U.S. men's national team, which finds itself in second place. Gianluca Busio also got some minutes in Kingston as Weston McKinney and Miles Robinson couldn't play. That was a big blow. I don't want to ignore that. They couldn't play because of late, late, late yellow cards against Mexico, uh, disqualifying them from this Jamaica game. Do they win if they have those two players? I'm not sure because it was a solo individual effort that I don't think Miles Robinson could have done anything to stop or even Weston McKinney. Uh, neither of them are direct attacking options. Uh, Weston McKinney had a great game against Mexico, but you really don't think of putting putting that on them. Or the, you look at 1-1, one, one, do, do either of them have enough to give the U.S. fight to get that second goal, to get that win? I don't know. Uh, but that is something to be aware of. Jean-Luc Abusio in that position, just kind of see his his age. He's young. He's actually younger than me, and I'm a sophomore in college. So it's just incredible. He's such a special player. Getting to watch him a little bit with Sporting Kansas City the last few seasons has been incredible. He plays right now for Venezia in the Serie A. Uh, has been getting better, but he's just the physicality, and that's always been the knock on his game, right? The f- midfielders are going to run right past him at times. He didn't really, inv- he wasn't involved in many duels, at least statistically, and the one he was first involved in, he lost. And so midfielders are running through him, and that's a little concerning, like for all that he can do progressing the ball, for all that he can do helping kind of be that metronome in midfield, there there are some hard aspects with his physicality, and that's the hard part about playing on the road against a team such as Jamaica. And then the other thing, again, it kind of ties into the Busio point. You're seeing the youth of one of the world's youngest teams. Like, the, the U.S. men's national team's average age is like 23 or something like that, I believe. Like, England's is 28, 29, or 30. They are statistically one of the youngest national teams in the world. And that's what, that's what makes it impressive to see, like, that result against Mexico. Some of these players, like, they're only 18, 19, 21, 23, and playing for some of the best clubs in the world, and you're seeing that. But you're also seeing in these road World Cup qualifiers, no John Brooks left off the roster. He's back in Germany. DeAndre Yedlin, one of the more senior players for the U.S. men's national team, at right back. But you also see the youth, um, the youth of, of this men's national team. And, and that's something that comes with time, and Next next time you play on the road in these places, these are young players. They will be around for the next cycle. And then that's when you kind of see the fruits of Greg Berhalter's labor. So those are a few worries I had trying to turn them into a few positives as well. Looking at some things I'm excited about, they've dropped points. They've had some interesting results. But for more often or more likely than not, they are still on the path to Qatar. Right, A home win against Mexico counts for a heck of a lot. You win that game, it's incredible. There's lots of chemistry around this team. You can see that in that win. Even in the losses, like I said, and the draws, the draw against Jamaica, those players were disappointed with a point on the road in CONCACAF, which a lot of people underestimate just how difficult it is to play in CONCACAF. 
And so that, that was very encouraging, at least, to see for me. Uh, it was awesome that Christian Pulisic back. Scoring that goal was absolutely incredible. You couldn't have asked for him to step up in a bigger moment. Of course, Weston McKinney gets the insurance goal in that game. Christian Pulisic struck first. And that's so awesome, especially after barely getting back in the health after that very first window back in uh, September, barely playing for Chelsea in London. And now he's scoring goals again. So it's nice to see him back in the lineup, even even the little bit that he is. And I'm also very impressed with the Walker Zimmerman and Miles Robinson pairing at center back, an MLS pairing right there. They've been very solid for the U.S. men's national team in the time that they've spent together. So I've been very excited about them. Also that MMA midfield. Musa was absolutely unbelievable against Mexico. The way he can control the ball, listening to other podcasts, I mean, I've heard points I've agreed with there. He's exactly what the U.S. wanted from Darlington Negby. And Negby, there were some things. He didn't, he didn't play for the national team as much. Um, he, he really didn't want to, it seems like. He's been called up from time to time, and it's just been an interesting situation. But you have Eunice Musa is just incredible, driving forward. Mexico couldn't get the ball off him. You pair him with Weston McKenney, Tyler Adams. That is an amazing midfield. That's the midfield of the future if you're the United States. You add some depth on that. That is the strong suit there. Then you have Gio Reyna back, healthy Christian Pulisic, Tim Weah. Um, you have Serginho Dest back, Ricardo Pepe. Like, if you're in the United States, you have a lot of young players you feel excited about. So that that's awesome. I, I'm very excited to see what comes next. And so you have the friendly against Bosnia and Herzegovina uh, right after the new year. That's probably an MLS window. Maybe you'll see Miles Robinson. You'll probably see Walker Zimmerman. You probably won't see a lot of the European players. But... By the time you get to that next qualifying window a little bit later, lots of exciting things to see. So that's what I will encompass with the U.S. men's national team. Uh, lots to talk about there. And NWSL semifinals occurred last week, and that was crazy. Both road teams won. You have the Chicago Red Stars going to Portland, Oregon, picking up a 2 nothing win against a team that had a league record 13 shutouts last season that were playing at home in front of their fans. And if you're Chicago, you had no Mallory Pugh, who was ruled out late in COVID protocols. You had um, your keeper go out in that game. Kalia Watt, one of the best attackers for the Chicago Red Stars, get injured early in that game. And so it's a shell of a Red Stars team, right? And this is a team that Portland beat at Providence Park 5-0 to start the regular season. To come in the Providence Park with that roster and win that game, and Portland never really looked threatening. That was just an impressive performance from the Chicago Red Stars. They had a pair of really, really nice goals. Portland couldn't do much to match it. They continued to grow frustrated throughout the match. You look at Portland's, like, they outshot Chicago um, by at least three times in that game. And Chicago, I mean, one goal looked more like a cross, hit the near post, went right past goalkeeper Bella Bixby. The second goal came from outside the box. And so if you're Chicago, just an impressive result. Now, are those goals sustainable and repeatable? No. But you got the result and the job done in Portland. Now you go to Louisville to play a Washington Spirit team that traveled to Tacoma, Washington, beat O.L. Reign uh, 2-1, coming back from an early 1-0 deficit against another one of the more talented teams in the league that I had high expectations of with the Reign. And, and, and they beat them on the road. And so... That was another exciting game. I think the NWSL semifinals lived up to the hype. And this all sets up the NWSL final in Louisville between Chicago, Washington. Two teams that have never won an NWSL trophy. 
One of them will win it after that game, and so that's exciting. Game was supposed to be played in Portland. Now it's in Louisville. Uh, that ironically benefits both teams, um, both closer to Chicago and Washington, D.C., versus Portland, which would have been very convenient if it was Portland uh, OL Reign for those two clubs in that area of the country, in the Cascadia region. But it's going to be Chicago, Washington. That game's going to play, be played at Louisville. Should be a great atmosphere for that game. Uh, I'm excited to watching that. Staying domestic right before going to the break. Looking at the awards here, uh, you have, I'm going to start with Major League Soccer. Some of those awards, actually those awards have not been announced. I'm going to go through like who I think should win the award, kind of look at some options here. Starting with MVP, it really, the race, it became a two-horse race down the stretch. You have two Eastern Conference attacking midfielders. You have Carlos Gil for the New England Revolution, the best player on the league's best team. Four goals, 18 assists. For him, just an 117 key passes, it's just, just insane. He pulls the strings for the Revolution, who just had a record-setting season at the top of the East that no one ever thinks about, but what a season it has been for Bruce Arenas, man. Then you have uh, Hani Mukhtar for Nashville SC, another impressive performance or season for him. He finished, I believe he had like 16 assists and like 12 or 14 goals, and... You look at what he's been able to do for this Nashville team that already had a strong defensive presence under Gary Smith. And, and to orchestrate what he was able to do for Nashville that finished um, just just below second and third place in the Eastern Conference just has been incredible. So yeah, I want to throw in a shot for Daniel Shallowy, who has been an incredible player for Sporting Kansas City this season. Uh, scored buckets of goals he's just come into himself he's been fun to watch he had some shouts down the stretch I think for me it's hard because it's between the league's best player and, and Honey Mukhtar who led who led Nashville and had the most combined goals and assists um I I could see Carlos Hill I might go with Mukhtar just because of what he's been able to do for that Nashville team that um is making a strong run that again is another team that no one really talks about but he's been their offense and he's led them to where they are on the table. And there'll be a threat in the playoffs. They have a good good defense and a solid offense. I think that's a good formula for success. And we'll see how that plays out soon. But I'm going to go with Hani Mukhtar. Um, next, Young Player of the Year. Very self-explanatory. Ricardo Pepe, Coach of the Year. I mean, it's really a two-horse race again between Robin Frazier with Colorado and the other first-place coach this time in the East Bruce Arena. Um. Arena, again, the Revolution had a record-setting season. I'm going to go with Robin Frazier, though, just because of, like, you think of where Colorado's always been. They've always been one of the lower-spending teams in the league. They have one designated player, Eunice Nomaly, who barely played 532 minutes. Right? I've talked in the past about the importance of designated players. That's how you separate your team. And when you're able to win a, a conference without many of them, and in the way that Robin Frazier's been able to build that team over the past few seasons, that they've won the West. And Sporting Kansas City or Seattle easily could have won it, so it's less of winning the West, but where they've been. They've been so solid both at home and on the road. A, such a great MLS team this season. A good story. I think for me, Robin Frazier, just because of exceeding expectations for me and, and what he's been able to do with the Colorado Rapids. Uh, newcomer of the year, Christian Arango. 
with LAFC. I mean, comes in midseason from the Colombian team Millonarios. 14 goals and two assists. Since midseason, midsummer. That's just incredible numbers, incredible output. And so you won't see him in the playoffs because LAFC didn't make it, but they have another special player on their hands. Um, and so I'm interested in seeing how that plays out. Defender of the year, I'm going to go with Miles Robinson with Atlanta United. Nobody really had a better dual percentage than him, 66.8%. Atlanta United, one of the league's better defenses. Now his U.S. men's national team form could play a role in that, but also he's been great at the club level as well, I think. Miles Robinson is definitely deserving. Some other good names as well, such as like Yamar in Seattle, but I'm definitely going to go, or like even Austin Trusty in Colorado. I'm going with Miles Robinson. Their goalkeeper of the year between Matt Turner and Andre Blake. I can see an argument either or. I'm going to go with Matt Turner. Just best goalkeeper on the league's best team. Has had a solid season. Very underheralded or unheralded, I should say. Um, continuing his, his break. He's just a solid MLS keeper, and I think I, I, I would love to give him an award for that. Now, looking through the NWSL, Jess Fishlock did win an MVP. A little bit controversial. No Angela Salem. Uh, she was at fifth place, which was a little bit low. Angela Salem, really the player who's made the Thorns click a lot this year. She finished in fifth. Mal Pugh in second. I mean, you can go down the list, and Ashley Hatch is in there too before. And it just kind of goes like it's a fan vote, and so the goal scoring is king. And so interesting not to see Angela Salem at least a little higher up in there. You can argue like Jess Fishlock's a good MVP candidate for all that she's done for OL Reign. But I think Angela Salem's a little low. Thanks, same thing with Coach of the Year. I think this was the one I kind of took exception to the most, not even just as someone who follows the Portland Thorns pretty closely. Laura Harvey won it over Mark Parsons. And so, yes, she had a good record. She came in midseason, though. Midseason, Mark Parsons led the Thorns to three trophies. They won the Women's International Champions Cup. They won the Fall Challenge Cup. And they won the NWSL Shield. Now, they couldn't get the job done and win a fourth. But neither could Laura Harvey. And so, yeah, they had a good record. Portland faltered down the stretch. There's no doubt about that. But Mark Parsons has had an incredible season with the Thorns, winning pretty much everything, winning the NWSL regular season, and has just to come in second to a coach who came in midseason. I think if it was another, if Laura Harvey did what she did the entire season, maybe came in second again, then I could see an argument. But Mark Parsons' body of work from this season predates when Laura Harvey has come into the league. And so I think for me that's the one that I'm a little or most miffed about, I should say. Um, but this way, give with fan voting, I think then you have Rookie of the Year, Goalkeeper of the Year. Uh, rookie of the Year will probably be like Trinity Rodman with the Washington Spirit. Just a very fun player to watch. Uh, goalkeeper of the Year is pretty hard. I mean, Portland's had the most cl- uh, clean sheets or shutouts at 13. Um, they also had a historically good defense, but also how much of that is the back line? A.D. French started the season with Thorns, and Bella Bixby took in after took on the role after midsummer. So I'll be interested to see how that shapes up um, and how the NWSL goes about that. It's 9.30, bottom of the hour. Um, lots to look at in Europe when I come back, looking at the road to Qatar. Plenty of other fun things to discuss in the bottom of the show. Um, you are listening to Soccer from the Sioux on KCOU 88.1 FM. Welcome back to Soccer from the Zoo on KCOU 88.1 
FM. We just talked about everything going on in North America. Now we got some things going on in Europe. And UEFA happened. Lots of craziness going on in uh, Europe there. I'm going to start here. Italy and Portugal are going to the playoffs. That's right. Italy and Portugal going to the playoffs. Two teams. Italy just won the Euros. And, and Portugal, of course, always, always in that competition as well. Lots going on there. And, and both of those teams will, be, will have to go through a, uh, a playoff system to go through. And so I wanted to talk about Euro qualifying. They're unforgiving. UEFA has 13 places, 10 go to the group winners. Of course, more representatives in the World Cup than any other nation. But three teams have to go through a playoff. And so the teams that are going to be seeded for the playoffs is going to be on Friday, November 26th is when the seeding will take place. The seeded teams, Portugal, Scotland, Italy, Russia, Sweden, and Wales. The unseeded teams here, Turkey, Poland, North Macedonia, Ukraine, Austria, Czech, and the Czech Republic. So how this works, there will be three paths of four teams. They will play out two semifinals and a final. They will only be single-legged games. And this is what you get. Three teams, only three of those teams will advance to the World Cup. Italy, Portugal, crazy to think they are in the mix. Um, And there's a potential that they don't make the World Cup. And so after this, um, or after all of this happened... Derek Ray, who is a uh, play-by-play commentator for a lot of Bundesliga games, some U.S. games as well, uh, based in the United States, uh, he he came out and talked about how U- uh, how UEFA is not as represented at the World Cup, or how it is one of the harder um, harder competitions. Which I mean, I get, but but also we got some pushback on that, right? Some people, this isn't the <laughs> this isn't the Euros again, Derek, but. But you can see the argument he has. There's so many talented teams that have to go through a playoff that you're in a position where Italy and because um, they lost to Switzerland, Italy and Portugal are in a playoff is just incredible. I mean, Sweden's in a playoff as well. Uh, Wales, there's some talented teams in there. Ukraine, who had a great Euros in the playoff. Uh, three World Cup spots up for grabs. And so I definitely get... I get that, but also you got to look at the, again the, the representation here. Africa gets five spots, Asia gets four and a half, South America gets three and a half, Concacaf um, also gets three and a half, Oceania gets a half of a nation. <laughs> so those halves are going to be playoff representatives, right? So South Africa, I believe, plays a South American team, right? Both those have four and a half, three and a half. One one team from either of those in the playoff will will go to to the World Cup. Um, and you kind of build out that way. But yeah, I mean, you look at the representation, most go to Europe. So you have some African teams missing out. You have some Asian teams missing out. Like every na- there's so many nations, not all of them can play in a World Cup. We saw what happened last cycle. The United States did not get to play in, uh, in the World Cup. They didn't even get to go to the playoffs. They finished outside of a playoff qualifying place. That's another thing to be interested in the United States. It's a four-team race. You don't want to be fourth and have to go through a playoff like Italy are or or like um, Portugal are. So that's kind of my thoughts there. 
There will be no Erling Holland at the 2022 World Cup. The next chance he has to make a World Cup 2026 as Norway eliminated losing to the Netherlands. Holland couldn't even go to Rotterdam where that game was being held just because of quarantine restrictions in the Netherlands at the moment. And it's just so disappointing talking about him on the show from time to time and the talent that he has. And, yeah, just to not not have him at a World Cup is a big shame. One of the best players in the world uh, just plays, plays for Norway, and Norway did not make it, and so we won't be seeing Holland. It kind of goes into maybe do more good European countries miss out. I mean, I don't know if Norway deserved to make it. Obviously, they didn't. But it's a bummer not getting to see Holland. So that's another toss-up argument. Like, these qualifiers mean a lot. Who knows how much they're going to mean down the line when you expand to 48 teams and more um, countries get spots. This is one of the arguments for more spots. That you get to see Holland at a World Cup. That you get to see some of the better players who play for some nations that are on the brink. I mean, another team I listed in the uh, UEFA seeding here, Poland, that's Robert Lewandowski, arguably the best striker in the world, at least in my opinion. Right? So you have those club, I mean, those international teams, I should say, and you you just won't be seeing Erling Holland, so that's a little bit of a, a bummer. Some other big European news, Xavi Alonso, the next manager at FC Barcelona. Um, the Catalan side fired Ronald Koeman. And Zavi played or coaches in his first game this weekend. Uh, in an article done by ESPN, same Mar- Marsden, good article about what to expect from Zavi Alonso. Uh, he talked about how his two coaching influences have been like Pep Guardiola and Frank Ricard. Also had some ideas shaped by Johan Cruyff and Luis Enrique. And Zavi Alonso, I think what's so exciting about that is he was play- or he played for those Barcelona teams that were so good in um, at the beginning of. The 2000s, 2010s, so good for so long. Played alongside those Leo Messi teams, Andres Iniesta. He knows what it means to be a Barcelona player, something that I feel like has been lost a little bit over the last few seasons. It's hard to take them seriously. Like Even the El Clasicos aren't must-watches at the moment. And so he knows what it will take to bring back Barcelona soccer. He knows the ideals there. It's going to be a long process, but it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, also for, for Zavi, it's been described as like, he wants to have possession, but not just having possession right in that Pep Guardiola mold, doing something with it, right? That's easier said than done. He wants to play in the opponent's half press, which has been an issue for Barcelona the past few seasons. They haven't had the, the personnel to play a heavy pressing soccer just because of the athletes on the team, right? So how realistic is this? It's going to take some time. It's not going to be an overnight fix with this Barcelona team, but it's going to be interesting to see how Xavi um, imprints. His ideas also in that report that he wants to add some potent wingers, wingers, I should say, that can hog the touchline and beat their marker one-on-one per Diario Sport, which was cited in that report. Kingsley Coman and Hakim Ziyech could be two interesting transfer names. Um, for Barcelona that Xavi Alonso could be interested in. So two great players. I don't think Barcelona has the finances to sign either one, but I think for me, his main goal is to develop youth, right? La Masia, one of the best academies of the past two decades uh, for FC Barcelona. Lionel Messi, Andres Iniesta, a lot of the players 
on those great Barcelona teams that won Champions League, came up through La Masia. It's a great system. I think, I mean, you can't buy players at this point because your finances are down the drain if you're Barcelona. But you got to develop, and so I'm going to be interested to see how Xavi Alonso manages that pipeline, play, how he plays some of the younger players, get some experience, versus relying on a lot of the great players already in the side. So I'm definitely excited to see how Xavi Alonso approaches it. Now, continuing some international talk, CONCACAF, Mexico loses to Canada. I talked about that in the Blizzard game. You have the top four places I went through. Panama is a legit team to either make the playoff or qualify straight up. They have that win at home against the United States. I think that's going to be a huge game when that return leg is played in America. Uh, Then you have Mexico, you have Canada, you have the U.S. So one of those four teams are probably going to qualify, but you're only halfway through. Who knows if Costa Rica makes a late charge? I don't think they will, but they could. U.S., Mexico, Canada, Panama. Uh, Very exciting uh, to see. Another piece of news that came out, potential home games for the next United States window. Depends on where Canada puts their game against the United States. If that game is in the East, as some expect, then it was reported by Stephen Goff of the Washington Post. Columbus, Ohio is in play, and you know, ugh. Like, it's cool lower.com field to get a game, but they've already had um, a game, right? You ha- They already had a World Cup qualifying game. They go back there instead of, like, a different venue in America, at least in, in my opinion. And a lot of people have thought the same thing, like, show off some diverse atmospheres. And I get not going to Portland. You're not going to go to Portland, one, because of the turf. Two, you're probably not going to the West Coast if you're on the east side of Panama, going another 2,000 miles, you're probably looking at like a Kansas City or a Minnesota. You don't want to play Minnesota in that first window. It's still a little a little bit chilly in the north there. Um, but if you're in the United States, where do you play that game? Probably not going to the East Coast against uh, sides like El Salvador. And so it's probably going to be in the Midwest. I can see Columbus. I think Kansas City could be a likely candidate. Um, but I don't, I don't get going back to... I, I wouldn't like them to go back to Columbus. They've already played a qualifier there. Um, for as cool as that atmosphere is, you've had th- two games already in Ohio. I'd be interested, and I want to see them play kind of elsewhere. Um, kind of looking at the latest international window, I kind of broke it down. Who's already qualified for Qatar? Qatar is qualified just for being the host nation. That will be the U.S., Mexico, and Canada in the next cycle. Germany, Denmark. Brazil, Belgium, France, Serbia, Spain, Croatia, Switzerland, England, the Netherlands, and Argentina are qualified. Argentina by being one of Conmebol's top four teams. Um, In November, of course, Brazil, a top four team, uh, looking through those sides. Then you have just the different UEFA winners there. A lot of names you expect kind of going through. Serbia is an awesome one um, from Group A. Croatia is interesting. They made uh, the World Cup final of the last World Cup. So it'll be interested in an aging team there to kind of see see them in the competition. So that's already some of the teams who have qualified and makes a lot of sense. England, could they bring it home? Is it coming home, I should say? Who knows? Um, but that that's kind of coming up next. Uh, next, for me... The 50 best men's players, um, this was a list done by Goal. I'm just going to read through the top 10, provide some reactions. Uh, Just something interesting to talk about in the soccer realm. 
More recently, Lionel Messi, number one for PSG. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, number two. Robert Lewandowski, again, who I believe is one of the best strikers in the world, if not the best striker. Um, Mohamed Salah at four. Coming in at five is Kylian Mbappe. Erling Haaland at six. At seven, Karim Benzema. Uh, N'Golo Kante at eight. Um, nine is going to be Kevin De Bruyne. And ten is Neymar. Looking at this list, some things that stand out to me. I know this is a top 50. Um, but for me, Messi one, Ronaldo two. I don't think Ronaldo should be two. Uh, he's had he's had an okay season. Like he's done good things at Manchester United and when he was with um Juventus. But I don't think he's the second best player in the world. I mean, at this point, you're gonna have Messi and Ronaldo until they probably retire, but I think there's been better seasons. Robert Lewandowski, again, I think has been the best striker in the world. I think Erling Holland has He's probably not one or two, and I know he's pretty high, but he could be higher. Uh, Kareem Benzema was the most interesting name to me, but kind of looking into it, yeah, it makes some sense. Comeback season for him, 10 goals, 7 assists, 11 matches. Had a good season last season as well. Been doing some great things with the French national team. There's been a lot to be positive about when it comes to uh, Kareem Benzema and what he's been able to do and his all-around ability at striker and forward. And then you have N'Golo Kante, Kevin De Bruyne, some midfielders there. Romelu Lukaku at 12, really interesting. He comes in right behind Luis Suarez, um, who plays with Atletico Madrid. Uh, interesting list, kind of just my breakdown. I think Lewandowski's been my favorite player to watch, just in how clinical he is. He knows how to put the ball into the back of the net. There's good shots for any one of them. I, I can see Messi there. But really, when you look at some of the forwards that are fun to watch, it's Erling Holland, it's Robert Lewandowski. Kareem Benzema was an interesting one for sure. Um, Killing Mbappe has been fun to watch as well. Interesting lists. I agree with most of it, but there's some things that at least piqued my interest, and in, which is why I wanted to talk about things. And, and as we kind of near um, um, 9.50, I should say, Central, uh, just a few things I want to talk about. Looking ahead to the next week um, for me, Vancouver Whitecaps, and this is going to be some MLS playoff games. Vancouver Whitecaps travel to Sporting Kansas City. That's at 4 p.m. at Children's Mercy Park. That's a game I'm definitely very excited to watch. Um, I will be covering the Mizzou football game that day, or else I probably would have been in Kansas City covering that game. And I think it's the most fun storyline in MLS against a Sporting Kansas City team who haven't been the best down the stretch. Sporting Kansas City could have won the West on decision day and just couldn't come up with that. Vancouver's been one of the hottest teams. They had to continuously win and pick up results at home and on the road to make the playoffs and get to this point. So I talked a little bit about that last week. I'm excited to see uh, how, how this game plays out. Again, that's going to be on Saturday. Best storyline against a team that's kind of been falling in momentum, but I'm very excited to see um, how, how Sporting Kansas City approaches it if Alan Polito's healthy and plays. Daniel Shallowy, Johnny Russell... The last time they won a game was 2-0 against the LA Galaxy. Losses to Austin, losses to Minnesota, RSL at the death on decision day. So I'm very excited to see what they do against a Vancouver team that feels like they haven't played in forever, to be completely honest. But but a very, very interesting playoff game, I should say. I'm going to keep an eye on. Next game, of course, in the NWSL final, Chicago Red Stars against the Washington Spirit. That's an 11 a.m. Central Time kickoff on November 20th as well. So before you watch Sporting Kansas City and Vancouver, 
You can watch Chicago and Washington. Chicago, some injuries in Pew, Cleo Watt. They got um, hurt or COVID dealing with COVID protocols. Chicago coming in winning five consecutive games. Washington has won six consecutive games. Again, neither team has won a trophy in the NWSL. So you're going to see some history here. I think it's going to be awesome. Trinity Rodman and Ashley Hatch. Interesting stories with some good storylines. Interesting players, I should say, with good storylines for the spirit. Going over the Europe, Bundesliga, maybe not the most high-profile clash at the top of the table, but Hertha Berlin versus Union Berlin. That game's going to be played at the Alte Forestrei in Berlin. Some crazy environments there. Union, 17 points through 11 games is the best mark in the Bundesliga so far, but they are also winless in their past three games. But again, this is another much-watched game just because of the derby atmosphere you're going to have. Um, Hertha has a pretty good record against Union. They've won twice, lost once, and drawn once since they've been in the Bundesliga. And I think this will be another another one of those crazy games, 11.30 a.m. kickoff on Saturday if you want to dual-screen that with the NWSL final. Finally, looking at Xavier Alonso's first game in charge, Espanyol at the new camp. That's 2 p.m. Central Time on Saturday. Uh, both of these teams level with 17 points, currently sitting around mid-table, but a win jumps either end of these teams up to about six. So not the start either team wants to the season. Still easy to make up some ground in La Liga. Barca will want to do that, start Xavier Alonso's reign as manager on a great footing. But Espanol's not going to be an easy feat for them. I'm definitely excited to see how that game plays out. So that's really all I had for the show. Kind of looking through the tables to wrap up the um, the show here as Missouri soccer is done with their season. Looking first at the Premier League, looking at the top four as we get back into domestic play. Chelsea, 26 points, sitting in first Man City on 23. West Ham on 23. Liverpool on 22. Behind that, you have Arsenal. I previewed it last week. Arsenal and Liverpool play this week, and that'll be another good game to keep an eye on. Manchester United at 6, Brighton at 7, Wolves at 8, Tottenham 9, Crystal Palace 10, Everton 11. You look at the top half of this Premier League table, everything is so close, right? A Manchester United wins, leaps them above Arsenal. Yeah, Arsenal. Wolves, 16 points. A win leaps them from 8 to eight to 6. Everton has 15 points and sit in 11th. A win leaps them up to 6th well, or 5th as well. Or I guess that's 6th is a push from Man United down. Just kind of looking through the table. Everything's still to play for after Everton. You have Leicester City, Southampton, Brentford. Those teams, uh, very competitive still in the Premier League that will start up again in the coming um, coming days. Going more toward the Bundesliga. That's also been fairly competitive outside of, you. you know, you have... Um, Bayern Munich, I should say, running away again, kind of. They are on 28 points, four points ahead of Borussia Dortmund. Two points below Dortmund, SC Freiburg, and then Wolfsburg on 22 and 19 points. Then you have RB Leipzig, Jesse Marsh's team, three wins in their last five games, no losses there. Uh, continue to go down, Bayer Leverkusen, Mainz, Union Berlin, Borussia Mönchengladbach, Hoffenheim, Köln, uh, VfL Bochum, uh, Hertha, Eintracht Frankfurt, uh, I mean, a lot of these leagues still have some teams that are relatively close together that have been fun. Um, that will be fun to watch, I should say, going to the Serie A at the moment. 
Uh, Napoli sitting in first, tied with Milan, 32 points apiece. Then a seven-point drop-off before you get Inter Milan, Atalanta, Lazio. You still got to go down a little bit to find Juventus. You have Roma under Jose Mourinho. Fiorentina, Juventus in eighth. Bologna, Verona, Empoli, Tornino, Sassuolo, uh, and continuing to read down there. So a great two-team race. Four wins from five from Milan. Three wins from five from Napoli. Both winless in at least their last five games. Uh, going down to La Liga. Real Sociedad, Sociedad with 28 points. Real Madrid on 27. They have Sevilla, Atletico Madrid, Real Betis, Rayo Vallejano, uh, Osasuna, Atletico. Um, Barcelona currently sitting in 9th with 17th. Valencia in 10th. Espanyol in 11th. All those teams sitting on 17 points. Barcelona looking at the recent record. One win in their last five. Not where they want to be for obvious reasons. Continuing to go down the table from there. Looking at uh, Ligun. Um, finally, as we've talked a little bit about Major League Soccer playoffs start this weekend, of course. PSG in first, 10 points ahead of second place. Lens, then Nice, Marseille, Lens. Um, we continue to go, go down that way. Montpellier, Lyon, Strasbourg, Angers, Nantes, Monaco, Lille. I mean, PSG's up on that table by 10 points. Again, Champions League's what matters for the Parisians there. And that's, the, that's kind of what we judge them on as people on the outside looking in. So we'll talk about them more when we get back into that Champions League discussion for the next a round of Champions League matches. But with that, that will do it for another episode of Soccer from the Zoo, another show of Soccer from the Zoo. Thank you, as always, for listening on KCOU 88.1 FM. It's been a blast. Uh, you can follow the podcast anywhere you get your podcast there. Follow it on Twitter at Soccer at the Zoo. That is Z-O-U. You can follow me at Kyle underscore Pinnell underscore on Twitter. Thank you again for listening. Lots of exciting domestic soccer Going on, be sure to tune into the NWSL final, MLS playoffs, lots of stuff to recap. Again, I won't be on the air next Thursday, but the Thursday after that, I will be back for the two weeks before going back home for Christmas break. So lots to unpack, lots to do. I'm excited to be back, but enjoy soccer for the next week, uh, next few weeks. And as always, um, thanks for listening to KCU uh, 88.1 FM.